pray. Father, it's so good to be here with your people and with the visitors who are here today. I ask, Father, now that you would take these words from your book and cause them to spring to life in our hearts and change us. Lord, this message, as you know, is primarily for believers. And yet for those who, Father, have yet to submit to the obedience of faith, that is, they have yet to bow the knee before Jesus and find in him everything that they, they were created to have and be. I pray, Father, that today would be the day that they would come to the conclusion by the power of your Spirit that they have nothing to offer God but their sin and that Jesus will freely take it upon himself and die in their place and that they will be justified and forgiven. No, Father, I pray that you would implant them into a local church where they can grow and become more and more the person that God wants them to be and what in the end they will love to be. Lord, we love you. We praise you for this hour and we ask you to bless it in ways that None of us can anticipate. But we give you thanks in advance for what you'll do through your word. We pray that you'd protect us from error and fill us with your truth and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes how believers view church. I suspect this is the testimony of many who are hearing my voice this morning. Before you were saved, before you were called, before God called you to himself by the gospel, you had little interest in the church. This is even true for many of you who have grown up in the church. As soon as you became of age, one day you looked up at your mom and dad and thought, what are we doing here? Why do we have to come to church? This is also true for people who would never intentionally darken the door of a, of a church, except for maybe a wedding or a funeral. And I suspect you are all acutely aware of the, the culture of our country and how it's growing less and less tolerant of the church, the doctrines to which she clings and the righteous biblical standards by which she strives to live, all of this has become anathema to our society, to our culture. That which used to be universally rejected as evil is now the new morality. And that which throughout history has been viewed as moral and right and good is now considered to be immoral and unrighteous, and worthy of penalty. Today, in the hallowed halls of our government, new legislation is being created that will establish more of the new morality as law of the land. And as that agenda gains traction, the church and its leaders will increasingly become the targets of censorship, financial penalties, and even arrest. If you think that's an overstatement, witness 
what has happened most recently to our brother James Coates in Alberta, Canada, for canceling for not canceling church in the latter days of the pandemic, he has been arrested and thrown in jail. Like John Bunyan hundreds of years ago, they told him if he would just swear off preaching, that they would set him free. And I don't know if he quoted John Bunyan, but John Bunyan said, I could do that, but not without it making making me feel like the flesh is being torn off my bones. He willingly stayed in jail. All of this is contrary to clear constitutional mandates in both countries. Nevertheless, we find, or we shouldn't find it surprising that hostility from the world is, is evident in our society today. Jesus said it would happen. And I suspect this is just the beginning of what's to come, as world leaders persist in legislating more and more pressure on the church to conform to the new social ethics as it relates to freedom of worship and gender fluidity and racial and sexual equality and environmental protection and, and a host of other issues that will find their ways creeping in upon the people of God. And all of this is going to put pressure on professing Christians relative to their relationship with the church. And frankly, I believe, we believe, that this is going to have a purifying effect on the church. People who have been attending church for decades will, will be unwilling to suffer for the superficial experiences of their man-centered churches in which they have all of these years served. And many who attend solid biblical churches will discover that their commitment to Christ is something that they are unwilling to suffer for. And the church may very well become smaller. And you know what? It's just downright providential that the Lord many years ago put it on the hearts of the elders of Calvary Bible Church to keep it small. To, instead of growing large, to plant small churches. And, and, and I believe that's how it should be. For the Apostle Paul, however, there was never any question about whether to persist in his devotion to the church. It didn't matter that it was illegal to meet in certain cities. It didn't matter when he was threatened with bodily harm. It didn't matter even when those threats were backed up with actual flogging, being beaten with rods, being arrested, and on one occasion, even being stoned and left for dead. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ created in him an unwavering devotion to the church for which Jesus died. And friends, I want you to understand that Paul loved the church. And do you know why? Because every Christian should love the church. Every Christian should love the church. He sacrificed for the church, Paul did. He supported the church. He was the primary instrument by which churches were planted and multiplied in Asia Minor. It was, it was Paul. It wasn't the other apostles. For the longest time, they were stayed in Jerusalem. And there was Paul out planting churches, training men and planting churches. While many modern Christians justify 
not gathering with the Lord's people for super, superficial reasons such as weather. It, it cracks me up down here in Texas. I've been here for 26 years, but it still cracks me up that when, you know, when it's, uh, when it's rainy out, oh, we, we can't risk going to church today. Let's just stay home. Or if it's really sunny out, uh, boy, it's a beautiful day. We, we, should, we should do something else for a change. And there are so many excuses for not coming, whether it's weather or work or leisure. Paul would happily travel thousands of miles by boat and on foot to fellowship with the Lord's people, other believers who gather as local churches. This is clearly borne out in the text before us this morning. Remember, Paul didn't grow up in the church. His passion, if possible, was to destroy it. But when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, his heart was radically changed. His view of Jesus changed. And when his view of Jesus changed, so did his view of the church. Instead of trying to kill it, he joined it and became one of the most important leaders of it. That which he once viewed as evil, does this sound familiar? Now became to him man's highest good. Now he's not only a lover of Christ, but also a lover of the bride of Christ, his church. I love serving the church, and not just this church. Calvary Bible Church has sent me all over the world to minister to little churches in foreign countries, in places where we're not supposed to go. And many of you, probably most of you, don't know this, but we have something going on right now with Calvary Bible Church. I have ten pastors, nine pastors, who are ACBC certified as biblical counselors, and every Thursday they, they teach a hundred students, up to a hundred students are signed up for this Every Thursday, one of these pastors here gives a message, a lecture, a training that is in two different schools. I'm trying to decide whether or not I should say the names of the countries. I think it's okay. Ukraine and Israel. Did you guys know we did that? We love doing this. We love serving the church in this way. And this is, how we, this is the way we see it. We are serving God's church. We're serving God's church. If we can't fly over there like we can't now, let's find another way to minister to those people. This was the passion of the Apostle Paul, and it is the passion of every church. This is the common experience of new believers, whereas once they were indifferent or even hostile to the church, now they love her. They love God's people and are devoted to gathering with them whenever the church meets. Beloved, the gospel that creates a deep love for Jesus also creates a deep love for his church. And that brings us to the primary question this morning. How should a believer think about relating to his church? How should a believer think about and relate to his local church? Well, in the passage before us this morning, Paul teaches by example how a Christian should relate to his church. Specifically, 
we should relate to the church thankfully, prayerfully, proactively, fruitfully, and evangelistically. Actually, I'm going to drop one of those points, but I'll explain that later. Now, with this in mind, please join with me. Let's stand together. I hope this doesn't seem awkward that I would have you stand in the middle of what feels like the middle of the sermon. Believe me, it's not the middle. It's just the beginning. <laughs> and, and read the scriptures, but this is good for us. Romans uh, 1, verses 8 through 15. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I did not want you to be unaware, brother, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, and along with them also, those who are in Rome. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. We have much, much to think about this morning. But first of all, Paul teaches us to relate to the church, number one, thankfully. In verse 8, Paul declares, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. That's a great way to pray for the church, isn't it? Thank God for all of them. All of them. All of them. Think about Calvary Bible Church and all the people. Scan through the directory. Lord, I pray for all of them. Now, that can be a cop-out for truly praying for anybody. But Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. It, it's it's somewhat humorous here to note that Paul's first word is first. We would, we would expect that that would be followed by a second and a third, and, and I really think, or at least I, I try to identify with Paul or make him identify with me, I think after he said first, he forgot that he was supposed to have a second because there isn't a second. Well, that may be true, or on the other hand, first may simply mean that he's about to say something important, so... So those of you who are listening to the letter of Romans being read, pay attention to this. I, I really want you to hear this. And we need to remember that Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Rome, and the most urgent thing on his mind is how thankful he is for them. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. These must have been sweet words to their ears. There they were, far away, far away from Jerusalem, where the mother church was, and all the other churches, really quite far from Rome, 
Paul, Paul knew about them. Paul knew about them. He knew many of, the, of, of its members by name. Chapter 16, he, he, he identifies 28 of them and thanks, sends thanks and, and praise to them. Paul knew this church. He knew it intentionally. They were far, far away, and yet he went out of his way to write them a letter. Paul was such an encourager. He was famous for building people up. In nearly every letter he wrote, he made it a point to give thanks for specific people in their respective churches. I'll give you a couple examples. In Philippians, he highlighted the faithfulness of Timothy and a guy named Epaphroditus. In his letters to Colossae, he mentions by name Epaphras and Onesimus. The only exception in his letters is when he wrote his letter to the Galatians. And the reason for that is because when he wrote it, he was mad. I mean, his first words in the book of Galatians were, you foolish Galatians. I mean, forget, thank God for you. You're in trouble. Normally, the reason Paul gave thanks to the Lord's people or for the Lord's people, was because of their faithfulness to Christ and his church. And that is certain, certainly the case here. He writes, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, you have a famous faith. Everybody knows about you. This is interesting. Paul says the reason he gives thanks to God for them is because their faith is proclaimed. That is, it has become well known throughout the whole world. Churches were telling other churches about this church, about their faith. Now, I take this to mean that all the other churches were, were talking about them, and I think there is a reason. It makes me wonder what happened or what was happening in Rome. It only takes a little sanctified imagination to perhaps fill in the gap here. After all, the church was planted right in the heart of the pagan Roman Empire. And at the time, guess, guess who your favorite um, emperor was at the time? Nero. And there they were, living under the shadow of Nero, the emperor. Paul wrote this letter in 57 AD, just seven years before much of Rome was burned down and Nero blamed the Christians and made them the scapegoat for all of the destruction that the masses experienced, all the loss of life and property. And he accused the, the Christians for having started it and hence the beginning of the great persecution of Nero. But that was seven years later it hadn't happened yet. Paul didn't know it was going to happen. But these were, we might call them, pre-persecution days. Nevertheless, I can't help but think that living as a Christian in Rome brought about some significant societal pressure, fraught with all kinds of temptations and fears. And even under those pressures, the brothers and sisters in the Roman church had remained faithful. They didn't waver 
They didn't give in to idolatry, which was huge in Rome. And all the other churches knew about it. We don't know the specifics, but we know that whatever they faced, as hard as it may have been or was being, they remained faithful. And frankly, um, we can identify that. We can identify with this. I immediately, when I, when I wrote these words this week, I immediately thought of Grace Community Church in California, who right now is remaining faithful to the Lord despite the despotic pressures the city of Los Angeles foist upon them every week. Like the church in Rome, their faith is being proclaimed literally all over the world. There are a group of men who are leading that church faithfully in the midst of difficulty. But notice here that Paul is not thanking the members of any particular church or the church of Rome or its pastors for their, for their faithfulness. Rather, he thanks God for their faithfulness. Because Paul knows something. Even faith is a gift. Even faith is a gift. Even perseverance is a gift. He thanks God for their faithfulness. Jesus said, I will build my church, and he is building his church, and nothing can keep Jesus from building his church. Not even death can hinder it. So the first way Christians should relate to their church is thankfully. Do you thank God for your church? And I'm not just talking about Calvary Bible Church. Do you thank God for the church that you belong to? I hope it's a true Bible-believing church. Why are you thankful for your local church? That's a good question, and when you go to small group today or sometime this week, you should be ready to talk about that. So we should be thankful for our church. And secondly, believers should relate to their churches prayerfully. Look at Verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Note the phrase, God is my witness. God is my witness. This is unusual. Paul doesn't usually, you know, kind of raise his hand and take an oath. But here he is, God is my witness. Paul uses this phrase in his writings sparingly, but he does so to emphasize the importance of what he's about to say. In this case, he's actually calling upon God as witness to the truthfulness of what he's about to write. But before we consider the important thing that Paul is about to write, he first wants us to consider who God is. And notice the parenthetical here. He, he kind of gets off that topic. Maybe he was looking for number two and it just didn't come to him, but he gets off on, on who God is. Who is this God who stands as witness behind what Paul will write to the church of Rome? Paul identifies him here. Verse 9, he says, He is the God whom I serve with my spirit. He is the God whom I serve. The word serve here 
is often translated worship. Although I think here the emphasis really is on service. We might look at it as it's appropriate to think of this as worshipful service or service as an act of worship. It is service that is rendered to God from the heart. And he says, in my spirit or from my spirit. And by the way, that's the only kind of service that's acceptable to God. A worshipful service from the heart. And you know what? Your service is acceptable no matter how how menial you may think it is. If it is from the heart and for the glory of God. But notice, too, that this service, Paul's ministry as an apostle, is in the gospel of his son. This is what he says. It is in the gospel of his son. In other words, everything God wants Paul to say as an apostle falls within the sphere of the gospel of his son. Everything. Now, the NASB inserts the phrase preaching of the gospel, but preaching is not in the original text. It it makes sense why they would say that, because Paul later talks about preaching, but not here. And I think that's a clue for us. To be sure, preaching was a ministry that Paul emphasized frequently, but the worshipful service that he was called to perform in Rome and other places would have included many things. Both Martin Lloyd-Jones and William Hendrickson, if that means anything to you, both of these men argue that Paul is speaking of all forms of ministry that fall under the broader scope or broader umbrella of the gospel. For example, teaching sound doctrine is part of the gospel ministry. Uh, Refuting error All of Paul's practical teachings on marriage, the duties of parents to their children, and the duties of children to their parents, all of it that comes out of the Word of God is part of gospel ministry. Or how about how to relate to the world and its government, how to address personal sin, how to ask for and grant forgiveness as an expression of the gospel. All of these things are an expression of the gospel. Your marriage is an expression of the gospel. Your relationship with other sinners and confessing sin and repenting of sin and asking for forgiveness, all of it is a representation of the gospel. The duties and qualifications of leaders are in the word of God. Therefore, they are a subset of the gospel, and the list goes on and on. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, every particle of the riches of his grace or a part of the gospel of his son. It is the good news of the son of God and what he came into the world to do. Lord Jones says, anything I can get from Christ is a part of the good news. In fact, everything Paul teaches us in Romans is in the gospel of his son. Everything Paul teaches is owing to and derived from the gospel of God's Son. You can't get salvation without having also access to all of the other 
elements of the gospel, all of the other fruits of the gospel that come with it. And this is what Romans is about, is it not? Isn't it all about the the gospel of God, the gospel of his son, how it creates saving faith in the heart of a sinner and how that faith works out into every area of our being, sanctifying and transforming us into the image of his son, who is in himself the personification of the gospel? This is what Romans is about. It's about the gospel. And when we get to the end of this book about the gospel, we're going to get all kinds of practical instruction about how to live. Drill down into the Bible's teaching on any subject and you will, soon see, you will soon see Jesus Christ face to face. He will be there. I'm not saying that he's in every text, but I'm saying he's behind it and in all of it. And this is the gospel of God's Son. Well, that was a wonderful inspired parenthesis that Paul gives us here, but Now we need to kind of get back to what Paul intended to say in Romans. What can be so important for Paul to say that he would call God to serve as witness to the veracity of his words? Well, first of all, he wants them to know that he prays for them constantly. He prays for them constantly. In fact, he prays, here's the word, without ceasing. Prays without ceasing. Generally speaking, every time he thinks of them, he prays for them. I was walking late last night, having studied this and thought about it and put it in my notes, and as I was walking in the dark with my dog, which I do almost every night late, um, certain people came to mind, and I thought, huh, this is what Paul was talking about. And I began praying for those people, and it was a sweet, sweet time, short but sweet time of prayer for them. Can you imagine how it would affect Calvary Bible Church if every time a member of our church body comes to mind and we actually discipline ourselves to redirect our minds toward prayer for them? This is what Paul did. James wrote, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I wonder how much more we could accomplish for the glory of God if we were serious about prayer. Do you pray for other members of your church when they come to mind? You know, our technology is great these days. I, all the time, there I am typing away and and my wrist buzz. For Christmas, my kids bought me uh, an Apple Watch and grouped me uh, buzzes me about, you know, I don't know, 50 times a day. And you know what? Almost all of them are prayer requests or people saying, thank you for that prayer request. I'm praying for that right now. I'll continue to pray. Please update us. And the updates come in. We're praying for one another. We need to pray for one another. Paul, is, the implication here is every time I think of you, I pray. I pray for you. And second, and more specifically, Paul prays that God would allow him to one day personally visit and get to know the members of the church in Rome. Here's how he says it. 
always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It's amazing, as we'll see in a minute, Paul's prayer is answered, but not in a way that he would have expected or planned for. But someone may ask, how does Paul how, how does Paul's request to see them again rise to the level of calling God as witness? Well, I think the point is, the point of all of this is that he truly loved these people. He was, he was sick about the fact that he couldn't see them. And who knows how he was prevented. There's one place in, in Acts where Paul says that they were prevented or hindered by Satan. There's another time he says he was, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. There were no doubt circumstantial issues that periodically kept them from going to Rome when they wanted to go to Rome. In any case, he never made it to Rome, and he was sick about it. He wanted to see these people. He wanted to fellowship with them. He wanted to bless them. He loved these people. He loved the church. And, and many of these people he knew in the body of Christ there. And he, he didn't want them to think that he was blowing them off. And here, he, here he's, he's halfway to Rome from Jerusalem. Paul, come see us now. But it wasn't time. It wasn't time. You see, Paul was writing his letter from Corinth. And Corinth was 750 miles from Rome. That seems like a really long distance. But before he could even begin his journey to Rome, he had to take the relief money. You remember, he was taking up the collection from church after church. And by the way, he was taking it for the Jews, and it was coming from the Gentiles. And he was carrying this money. And it was time for him to deliver the money to the starving. Remember, there was a famine around Judea, and so he had to deliver the money. This is what everybody donated to. And so he didn't go, he wasn't about to go to Rome, he was about to go to Jerusalem. Corinth is over a thousand miles from Jerusalem. If you take the short route, that means by water. And it's not only a thousand miles to Jerusalem, but it's a thousand miles in the wrong direction. Rome is here, Jerusalem is there. Paul is somewhere on the, the side of Rome. Then from Jerusalem, it's another 1,400 miles from Jerusalem back to Rome. All of this to say it was going to be, realistically, a year or two before he could hope to see his dear brothers and sisters. Were there potential risks involved in Paul's plan to visit the church? You bet. Were there hardships that he would endure along the way? Yes. Could he be killed in the process? Could he lose his life? Could he die? The answer is yes. Yes. And he was willing to take the risk. And I think I know why. There are a lot of theological reasons why. But I think one very practical reason why is, listen carefully, 
security. Your personal security is a myth. You could step out on this road. You could go to the doctor this week and get news. You could get the pandemic. I know this is encouraging y'all. I was talking to my neighbor and telling him that I needed somebody back when the blackouts were happening and it was so cold. And he said, hey, I got a couple of guys. I, I got a friend of mine who's 80 years old. Call him. His sons will come over and help. And so I called him. And he just, I, I knew it was him because his voice sounded like it was, he was 80-something. And, um, and then later on that week, I got talking to my neighbor again. And he said, hey, did... did did those guys come over and, and fix your heater? And I said, they sure did. He said, did you talk to their father? And I said, yeah. And it was a short conversation. It was a business conversation. And I said, yeah, why? He said, he's dead. He died. He died the day after you spoke to him. And like that. Nobody knew it was going to happen. Nobody, I mean, nobody planned for it. It wasn't a long process. He just died. Security is a myth. We make so many decisions based on whether we think we can keep ourselves safe. We make so many probably unbiblical decisions because we're all about keeping ourselves safe or healthy. Beloved, security is a myth. I mean, we're supernaturalists, right? We believe in God. We believe that periodically God interjects his will upon the world by miracle. We know, we believe that he operates the world by providence. And if all of that is true, listen, you will not die one millisecond before God's plan for you. Security is a myth. Take risks for God. Take risks. Why? Paul says in verse 11, for I long, I long to see you. Why is he going to take the risks? Why is he going to endure the hardship? I long to see you. Acts tells us that when he arrived in Jerusalem, however, to deliver the money, you remember? He was accused, he was beaten, he was arrested. It was then that the Lord appeared to him and told him that he would go to Rome to testify about Jesus. <laughs> so here's Paul saying, Lord, would you send me to Rome? Send me to Rome. Send me to Rome. Send me to Rome. Send me to Rome. The Lord appears and says, uh, now that you're all beaten up and arrested and in and, and jail, you should know I'm sending you to Rome as a prisoner. Lord, let me stay here. Let me stay here. Let me stay here. Let me stay here. <laughs> that doesn't seem safe. It's amazing how God answers prayer so many times in ways that we didn't think and, and would not have chosen for ourselves. Are you willing to take risks for the privilege of gathering with the church? The history of the church is a history of persecution and risk-taking for the glory of Christ. Are there any risks the Lord is calling you to take in the weeks and months ahead? I suspect Paul knew many of the risks before he 
ever prayed asking the Lord to send him to Rome. Well, how should a believer relate to their church? Well, they should relate thankfully, prayerfully, and third, we should relate proactively. Look at verses 12 and 13. For I long to see you, we read that, and here's why, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. When Paul imagined what it would be like to spend time with the church of Rome, he saw himself imparting a gift or gifts to the brothers and sisters there. But the gift he intended to give them was not the kind of gift that we usually think about when, for instance, we read 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12. Normally, we think about the spiritual gift that is given by the Holy Spirit as a special enablement for the good of the church. Gifts like teaching or administration or giving, etc. Paul taught about those special enablings of the Spirit for the edification of the church, but this is not what he has in mind here. We know that because Paul speaks of the gift that he will give them. But according to 1 Corinthians 12, 9, the spiritual gifts are normally talked about as being given exclusively by the Holy Spirit. And besides that, we should note here that the spiritual gift he desires to give is singular. It is one gift. But the recipient of this gift is plural. Many people. However many were in the church. So it's a gift... And it's a gift for you all, or as we say in Texas, y'all. Paul was from the south of Israel, I think. <laughs> so what is the gift Paul intended to give them? Well, for the sake of time, we won't banter very long. Let me just tell you what it is. The gift is his personal ministry of the word. I'm convinced of it. It's his personal ministry to them. That's why they wanted him to come. And that's why he wanted to go. Paul wanted to preach to them and teach them. He wanted to answer their questions about Jesus and the law and the Gentiles being included in, in the redemptive work of God. And this kind of teaching, in, in Paul's words, would strengthen you. Would strengthen you. I, I take it this wouldn't be one short sermon. It wouldn't be a fireside chat. He would go on and on and on. He would do it day. He would do it night. And as they talked about those precious truths from scriptures, they would be mutually encouraged. You see that there? Paul would not be satisfied merely with being their teacher. He wanted to enjoy being one of them. I love the fact that in small group... Um, my small group leader won't let me lead that group. <laughs> Pastor, you just need to be one of us. Now sit down, let somebody else lead for a change. Yes, sir, Phil. <laughs> they would be mutually edified. He wanted to enjoy being one of them as they all, including Paul, were edified by their Christ-exalting, gospel-centered fellowship 
And as they did, they would also be encouraged by each other's faith. Paul, Paul, would, Paul would say, tell me what's been happening here. I've heard the stories. Tell me. Tell me. Elijah, tell us, tell us what happened in your family. I heard something big happen. Yeah, and this happened, and this happened, and it was scary, and then the Lord, and their faith is built up. And it's as if Paul was saying, I want to come, not just so I can give you a gift, but so that you can give me one. Tell me about the Lord. Tell me how he has worked in your life. And so a Christian should relate to his or her church, thankfully, prayerfully, proactively, and now evangelistically. And you're saying, no, that's not next in the outline. Yeah, I know, but i got to confess that upon further reflection... <laughs> I thought this was going to be two parts, and it was only one, this last section here. Part of the reason for that is because I have to turn in my outline before I'm done my study so the ladies can get it printed and all of that stuff. Very practical reasons. But I've concluded that the fourth and fifth points of the outline are really one and the same. So you can cross out the word fruitfully. Paul is writing about his hope to evangelize Everyone who will listen to him preach the gospel in Rome. Honestly, he doesn't know what gospel they know. Is it the true gospel? If it's the true gospel, those who already know Jesus in the church are going to just love it. They're going to delight in it. It's going to feed their soul. And if they don't know that gospel, if they haven't received Christ, maybe they will when he preaches. Verse 13 says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And here he goes back to the big issue on his heart. I, I really want to come and see you, and I just can't come and see you. I want you to know, I, want you to be, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you. So not just to give a gift, but to reap some harvest I was thinking originally that this is a harvest of sanctification, and, and maybe it is, but it seems more natural that he's talking about evangelism. When he arrives in Rome, he fully intends to preach the gospel. It, it didn't matter whether his hearers, who they were, or, or where they came from. And Paul says in, in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, he would preach to them all, without reservation, without any distinction, considering the benefits that he possessed because of Christ, despite the fact that he, of all people, was a persecutor of the church, he felt a strong moral obligation to take that message to the lost Beloved, do you feel a similar obligation to take the message of the cross to the lost? I've been so encouraged. The elders here have been so encouraged by it. There seems to be a, a resurgence right now at Calvary Bible Church of people who've just decided they're going to be bold with the gospel. And there have been some wonderful conversations. There have been young men especially who are taking risks I praise God for you. And you women, you're probably doing it too, and I just don't hear about it. 
praise God for you too. Listen, you don't have to be a, a super genius to do this. You can, you can actually just walk up to someone and ask them if they know the Lord. Let me show you how to do that, right? You walk up to them and you say, hi there, do you know the Lord? <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I start. Yeah, maybe a little more. Hi, have I met you yet? Have I, have I met you before? And uh, what's your name? And where are you from? Can I ask you a question? Do you know the Lord? And then the door comes open. Or else they say, one of these young guys, when I asked him that question, I said, uh, do you know the Lord? And he said, yes. And I said, well, if he were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And he said, only because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I said, yes! <laughs> and most people don't know how to answer. But you're there to give them the answer. Do you feel an obligation? Not a, not a burden in the sense that it weighs on you in, in, in a legalistic sense. But do you look at the people around you and say, I wonder if they know the Lord. And I wonder if they'll talk to me. And I, and I can't say much, but maybe I can invite them to church and somebody can talk to them. We need to be faithful with what we have. And this is what God has called us to. This is what part of what the, the church is here for. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ affected your view of church? Has it made you more thankful for your church? Has the gospel made you more prayerful for your church? Has the gospel made you more proactive in your ministry in the local church? Has the gospel made you more evangelistic and fruitful for the sake of your church? The gospel should do all of these things. It is the gospel of God. And it is the gospel of God's Son. Oh, may the Lord find us faithful in all of these ways for his glory and for our own great joy. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. And, and, and are amazed that you would choose the likes of us. Not many... Not many bright, not many educated, not many noble. You've chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things and the based and the despised. The things that are not so that you might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. We are in Christ by your doing and we love that you have done it. We praise you. Receive our worship. As Father, to worship you from the heart. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.